This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. I wish you a blessed Holy Week and a happy Easter. The temperatures have teased us here with spring and my crocuses finally exploded from the ground, although now the daffodils and hyacinths have taken over. The unkempt hedge of forsythia finally bloomed, delayed by at least a week from last year. Perhaps the ice storm slowed it a bit. It is a beautiful flowering time of year, and the yellow of those daffodils and forsythia dominates. I would like to invite you to become a patron of the podcast through the Cultural Debris Patreon at patreon.com slash cultural debris. There is a link in show notes. Support levels start at only $2 a month. Support will help pay for hosting fees and equipment purchases. Go take a look at the support levels, which I had some fun in naming. A tremendous thank you to those who have already pledged support there. Anyone who signs up before the end of March will be entered to receive a free copy of Holly Ordway's Tolkien's Modern Readings, which was featured in the last episode of Cultural Debris. It's a great book and one any Tolkien fan would want to have. And at the end of March, here in a few days, I'll choose a patron at random to receive the book. I've also posted a few fun and relatively short videos at the Patreon. These are open for anyone to view, so I'd invite you to at least visit the site and watch them. Another way to help the podcast is to give a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts. You can do it while you listen, and it helps others find cultural debris. There are always bits of cultural debris that find their way here. I recently received a catalog of the centenary exhibition of Cardinal, now Saint, John Henry Newman, an exhibition held at the National Portrait Gallery in London in 1990. It's filled with interesting tidbits and illustrations. I fell victim to a recent special edition release from Field Notes, the little pocket-sized notebooks. They issued a set of three with covers from Robert McFarlane's book, Underland. The art is by Stanley Donwood. McFarlane's books are beautifully written, and I encourage anyone to read his book, The Old Ways. Now to find the courage to write in these, something I always struggle with, with beautiful notebooks. Our poem this Holy Week is from Christina Rossetti and is titled, Good Friday. Am I a stone and not a sheep that I can stand, O Christ, beneath thy cross, to number, drop by drop, thy blood's slow loss, and yet not weep? Not so those women loved, who with exceeding grief lamented thee? Not so fallen Peter, weeping bitterly? Not so the thief was moved? Not so the sun and moon which hid their faces in a starless sky, a horror of great darkness at broad noon. I, only I, yet give not o'er, but seek thy sheep, true shepherd of the flock. Greater than Moses, turn and look once more, and smite a rock. I'm happy to have Grace Olmstead 
on this episode of Cultural Debris. Grace has done excellent work for several years on issues of localism, just the sort of thing we like to talk about on Cultural Debris. Like your humble host, she is a devotee of Wendell Berry's works, and her new book, Uprooted, is a chronicle of approaching her own native place and her own life with the principles of localism, sustainability, and the obligations of membership. Join me as I talk with Grace Olmsted. Grace Olmsted, welcome to Cultural Debris. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you taking the time to talk. You're uh, you're probably doing a lot of this uh, these days. Uh, as much as I'm able, you know, I've got three small children, and so uh, thus far the schedule has seemed pretty manageable. I'm just trying to talk to people, you know, maybe one one thing a day or something like that, and very thankful to have a family and husband who support me as I disappear into my office to talk on my computer. <laughs> All right. Well, we're glad to have you and, and thankful that they will let you go for a little while. If we hear any banging of pots or something, we'll, we'll just, uh, <laughs> we'll just plug on through. I, I certainly understand that. Um, mine, mine don't bang on pots most of the time now, but, um, <laughs> but they have their, they have their own issues. So, uh, you, <laughs> You have a new book called Uprooted, Recovering the Legacy of the Places We've Left Behind. What place did you leave behind? I left behind a small farm community in Idaho. Uh, I grew up in Fruitland, named for the orchards that once existed there. But I, I lived in a small town that was next to the place where my great-great-great-grandparents homesteaded and lived up until my grandfather's generation, which was Emmett, Idaho. And so the book is focused on Emmett, um, but it includes a lot of trends that are happening in that larger farm community that includes Fruitland as well. And that's that's the town I left behind. Uh, Fruitland has 3,000 or so residents. I'm sure it's grown since I left. Uh, and Emmett has about 6,000. So both pretty small farm towns. Well, I can, um, I can sympathize with that because I grew up in, well, outside of uh, Manchester, Kentucky, which was the county seat we lived about 10 miles outside of town uh, and the Manchester was a population of about 2000. Um, and uh, I, a lot of this book resonated with me personally, just because I could see a lot of my own family's history and a lot of the struggles that you talk about personally are things that I've struggled with. You're, you're in an earlier stage of that than I am at this point, just, just because of age. But mm. um, the impulses that you express in this book are, are things that, that at times still tug at me. And, and, you know, we, I want to talk about some of those, um, some of those as we, as we go through. So you you are now in Virginia and not in Idaho. Correct. Yes. So I came out here for college 
in uh, 2009, and in my last couple of years of college, met my now husband, who was stationed at Andrews Air Force Base as part of the Air Force, and uh, we got married right after I graduated college and settled out here. His enlistment didn't end until 2018. And so we've lived in this area in part because of his work, but also now, you know, we've built up a lot of community out here. My work has really um, naturally been connected to Washington, D.C. and its uh, writerly community. And so it's been it's been our home now for about eight, eight going on. Uh, nine years as a married couple, and then, of course, uh, since college, over a decade. Which which raises, I guess, one of the, the big concerns underlying your book, and that you address directly a number of times, which is, at, at what point should you stay where you are? At what point do you go back to where you're from? And And there's a lot of tension that's built into that and there's there's also a lot of a lot of times a lot of guilt built built into those questions indeed and i wanted to try and present an argument for why returning home can and should be seen as a good thing in part because our culture does not generally view it as a good thing and if if there are good reasons to go and good reasons to stay in a place, our culture generally emphasizes the reasons to go, to leave home behind. And so I wanted to put before readers, as, as well as I was able, some of the important arguments for either staying in one's place or returning to a community that raised you that might need you in a lot of very tangible ways. Uh, that said, as you point out, uh, at what point have you lived in a place long enough, put down roots there, become a part of its community um, that requires you to continue loving it or that would encourage you to continue loving it? And that's, I think, a very important question. Uh, one of the reasons I still consider returning home is because I was part of a community that very much emphasized the tradition of caring for the ones who've, who've cared for us, who birthed us. You know, there's um, uh, a kind of funny but very true saying that I've uh, shared with my parents and friends that, you know, the, the parents who change your diapers when you were young, uh, you're responsible to change theirs when they, when they get to the point where they need you and they are old. Um, that was just something I saw practiced very tangibly growing up. A lot of Amish communities, once the parents get to an age where they need care, they move into uh, basically a granny flat attached to the homes of their children and their families. Growing up, I saw my grandparents and great-grandparents relying increasingly on their children for care. And so I want to be open to the possibility of providing that for my parents if and when they need me. Uh, I am the second daughter and uh, I have four or sorry, three siblings. So there's a chance someone else might provide it for me, but I see that as my responsibility. And so at the end of the book, I kind of talk about how that chain of indebtedness, that interdependence can call us home to care for the ones who cared for us and that that's a good thing. It's not something to see as a horrible obligation that constrains your freedom, but rather something that brings a lot of life and beauty with it. Right. It's, it's asking of ourselves 
different questions than the popular culture uh, and even we'll say academic culture, success culture, those things ask of us, which, which is what, what are you going to do? What can you accomplish? What, um, what status can you achieve in the eyes of, you know, a certain, a certain subset of people, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, rather than uh, where do you, maybe where do you fit in? And those are, those are sometimes different questions that lead us to different places. I, um, of course, I live in Kentucky and I'm from Kentucky and uh, my uh, parents still live on the farm where I grew up. And uh, that farm, that particular farm has not been in my family a long time. I mean, and by that, I mean, it's probably 60 or 75 years, maybe. But the county where I'm from, and in Kentucky, we we typically think of things by county rather than town, I guess because there aren't many, the towns aren't particularly big, so a lot of people don't live in the town, right? So you, you identify with the county. Um, yeah. So I'm from Clay, I'm from Clay County. So the, the, the county seat's Manchester, but people ask me if I'm from Manchester. And so sometimes accommodatively, I will say yes, but I don't think of mm-hmm. myself as from Manchester because, well, I grew up 10 miles outside of town. And so that's not where I'm from, you know, so that's, uh, it can get very granular, I guess, these ideas of where we're from, but, um, but still this, this idea of place and, and an attachment to place is something that a lot of people feel very strongly, but at the same time, over the past generations, the transience of our culture has made fewer and fewer people even think about that in, in a significant way. And, and your book seeks to kind of poke those ashes and those embers, I guess. Yes. Uh, you know, rootlessness is generally a, an accepted mode of life. And one thing I wanted to point out is that usually it is uh, the the most privileged and wealthy, the elites are able to jet from coast to coast and to live a society that's very much separate from any sort of larger indebtedness or embeddedness in place. And sadly, the the cost of that is paid by those who don't have the freedom or the money to leave um, or the opportunity or desire, perhaps. People left behind in aging or emptying rural towns who increasingly see themselves not as stickers who want to be there, but rather as stuck and who have no ability to move on to a place that might offer them greater health or flourishing. Um, I think Christopher Lash really started to recognize this and to identify it in his book, The Revolt of the Elites, but it's a trend that seems to be coming increasingly more common as time goes on. So you you adopt this dichotomy that uh, that Wallace Stegner talked about, and that Wendell Berry has also used this idea of boomers versus stickers, and and boomers not in the sense of of modern <laughs> of of modern and current <laughs> uh, parlance, um, yeah, but 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 boomers versus stickers as far as the the mindset of people in a place. Can you break those, those terms down for us? 
Yes. So Wallace Stegner called the United States two populations, the boomers and the stickers. Uh, Stickers are those who settle down and invest somewhere. Boomers come to extract value from a place and then leave. They're part of a boom and bust cycle in a place. And another way to maybe understand the concept would be to think of the two populations as consumers versus stewards, you know, those who deplete a place for their own gain, who participate in what I see as a larger throwaway culture, kind of borrowing language from Pope Francis there, or those who seek to be rooted and to cultivate fruitfulness in place, um, both for themselves and for future generations. So Stegner, because he grew up in the West, He saw these boom and bust cycles repeating themselves over and over again, really draining a lot of resources and health from various communities throughout the West over time and leading to a lot of the ghost towns that still exist today um, in places in Idaho like Silver City, uh, places like Sumter, Oregon, uh, where mining oftentimes existed or deforestation was widespread, but he also saw it as an attitude that had a lot of cultural and societal impacts as well as environmental impacts, because people who are coming to extract and, in his words, pillage and leave, never settle and serve community and build a healthy, flourishing place or neighborhood. And he wanted to fight against that, I think, and to show why it's sort of a placed form of living in which you do invest yourself into the soil of a town or a community or a county long term not only served the environmental and ecological well-being but the health of the everyday people who lived there as well and that's language that Wendell Berry who was a student of Stegner's some years back uh, he's also adopted and, and talked about in in various of uh, various writings of his I I can identify uh, strongly with that because I'm from Eastern Kentucky, um, a, a very different kind of place in a lot of ways than where Wendell Berry is from. Uh, but mining and uh, deforestation are both, have both been big issues in the area of Kentucky mm-hmm. that I'm from. Coal mining, strip mining, particularly, uh, which, you know, which have, have caused really permanent damage um, that that we're still trying to figure out how to deal with. But but by and large, the coal mining has left. There's still some of it, but it's not like it was even when I was when I was young and growing up, there would be coal trucks mm-hmm. driving by and so forth. But there's a there there's also tension there because that that kind of economy sustains a lot of people and that's what i've seen what the problem one of the big problems we've had in eastern kentucky is something like a a coal mining um a coal mining culture has brought brought a lot of money brought a lot of jobs to people who otherwise didn't have them um Mm -hmm. and then but then when it goes it you know it's like a sugar high you crash but then what do you do and that's um you know that's sort of a a perpetual question i guess Yeah. And it's interesting how a lot of post-industrial towns across uh, the Rust Belt and other parts of America have had to ask this question. In addition to being a farm town, 
there was a lumber mill in Emmett back in the day uh, that turned it into a place that generated a lot of jobs for multiple generations of people in place for a long time. Um, But as the company that owned the lumber mill continued to grow and expand, it began to butt up against the conservation groups that were trying to preserve the Payette National Forest and other forested areas of Idaho. And so one of the reasons they ended up leaving is because their goals as a company for expansion were moving beyond the limits of their place as a as a placed company within Idaho, which I think is really interesting. But you're right, there's there's a lot of jobs and worth that are oftentimes related to these very resource-oriented fields. And um, I don't I don't have any good answers as someone who hasn't studied, um, for instance, clean energy to the degree that I, I perhaps should at this point. But when it comes to farming, it's it's a very similar conversation because the soil is itself a resource. And one sure. thing I wanted to emphasize in this book that is that it's a soil or sorry, soil is a natural resource that can be exploited, undermined and, and driven to the point of utter depletion. And we've seen that throughout our history. And so seeking to farm in a way that emphasizes the health of the soil, the ongoing health of the soil and everything that relies upon it is absolutely necessitous. Uh, And yet it's oftentimes something that gets, you know, pushed under the rug because we have this view that in order to feed the world, We have to keep just extracting every last piece of health out of our ground. Whereas I think the fascinating thing that uh, Wes Jackson and others have promoted through their work is the fact that we will get more out of the soil if it is full of diverse life, if it is itself healthy, and we're not just eking the last measure of goodness out of it all the time. Yeah, you're, of course, the book, the book is echoing a lot of themes and, and maybe even updating a lot of themes from that, that Wendell Berry touched on in the unsettling of America back in the seventies. But, but you're, you're taking it to this, to this place in Idaho that, um, you know, that's far, far removed from Henry County, Kentucky or, or places East. And, and we see those same issues playing out of of the, the working of the oh, the overworking of the soil until it's essentially worn out and and that necessitates more and more uh, industrialization through uh, farm equipment and fertilizers and so forth and mm-hmm. so it, it becomes a it becomes a cycle that's that's almost impossible to get out of because you're so reliant on the productivity and, and then farmers are also in debt. So they Mm -hmm. can't, they can't take a step back. It's, it's, they're, they're in a sense trapped. Yes. Yep. It's a very broken system propped up at this point by federal government subsidies in order to exist. And that became very clear. I think in, in the uh, Trump administration, when the trade war with China resulted in this relief package for farmers that involved billions of dollars of federal government aid. It was basically meant just to sustain them through the trade war that was going on. And yet at that moment, 
it would have been very interesting if we had had a sort of um, moment to reflect as a nation about where our culture, our agricultural production was at, how healthy or or unhealthy it was. And we had started to emphasize perhaps some more resilience and diversity in what we grew, for whom we grew it, and um, what farming looks like on the ground. Because then, of course, with not more than a year or two to spare, we launched straight into the COVID-19 epidemic and saw once again that farmers were working in an extremely brittle system that did not lend itself to any sort of resilience or health on the ground. And so I think those two events very close together just hinted at what we have seen gone wrong in the world of agriculture and the impact it's had on the health and well-being of farmers and their operations, but also on the larger rural ecosystems that are meant to support them, but that have really struggled over the past several decades. Well, one of the things certainly that the that the pandemic has shown us uh, is how vulnerable systems are that we didn't necessarily think were vulnerable, or we didn't it didn't occur mm-hmm. to us that they were, and that seems certainly to be the case with our with our farming or agribusiness culture. It's not it's not collapsed, but it's more vulnerable than we than we think it is because we tend just to assume it's going to keep plugging along without giving it much thought. Right. And as we have created a very efficient system, as Michael Pollan recently pointed out in the Washington Post, um, we've seen the goods that come with an efficient system. Many people are very grateful to have a system of distribution and processing of, of our food that enables them to have bananas, mangoes, um, wine from Spain, you know, in the middle of the winter. But insofar as we've broken down a little bit more of that local resilience and diversity, for instance, having more local and regional slaughterhouses or processing and packing sheds, what we see is that when those bottlenecks, processing and distributing bottlenecks appear, then people are cut off from their food supply. The system doesn't work as seamlessly as we would hope. And we see situations like we saw this last year in which uh, grocery store shelves empty out and there's nothing to replace them and hogs are getting euthanized and potatoes are getting dumped on the side of the road because farmers have literally no way to sell their product. And so beginning to build back some of the local and regional industry clusters that undergirded those farmers and that made it possible for them to have more than one Um, source in which to market their product would just be, one would think, the natural outworking of a healthier system. You're listening to the Cultural Debris Podcast. So let's let's talk a little bit more directly about the book. You've, it's, it's built around, of course, your own hometown and and the place where multiple generations, what, going back over 100 years, of your mm-hmm. family uh, have have lived, and and part and some of your family still lives there. Most of your family still lives there, and uh, you you have these 
I guess little you have these vignettes of of different farmers of people who are who are still there farming, and you introduce us to different families and different farmers and um, and talk about their struggles while you also work in the the story of your own family uh, in in all of that. And one of the things that struck me was the reluctance of a lot of these people to talk to you. Uh, what, 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 what was that like? What did that feel like? And, and how did you break through that resistance? Well, I think it, it might have to do with the fact that as a journalist, I'm actually quite used to this. There's, there's a probably an entire class of, of hardworking people who are not used to talking to journalists and who are not used to journalists having any interest in what they do. This is a very sad thing. Uh, but it means that the novelty and the strangeness of it would make them understandably a little bit cautious, <laughs> especially when they don't know what you're going to write or who you are. And sure. so that wasn't entirely strange to me because uh, some years before I focused on Emmett itself, I worked on a project uh, in which I looked at kind of the decline of small to mid-scale family farms throughout the nation. And so I was trying to get interviews from a sampling of states. And through that process found that oftentimes it worked best if someone with an organization, say the um, Young Farmers Association of America, I, I think it's actually National Farmers, National Young Farmers Association, uh, if they introduced me to someone with their organization rather than me reaching out just by myself. Um, so it wasn't altogether strange, but I think what I recognized there was that A, a lot of these populations are not used to talking to journalists, as I said, do not have that sort of interest expressed in their work, which I think should change. Um, but in addition to that, they are part of a group of people who feel most comfortable through those sense of kith and kin ties that enable them to know that this this person is is a friend or friendly. And so as I was seeking to set up interviews, rather than relying on associational relationships, I leaned on my family relationships and I would call and say, you know, I'm Wally's granddaughter, Wally Howard's granddaughter. And all of a sudden, their voices would become warm and they were very interested in why I wanted to talk to them and how in the world I became a journalist in Washington, D.C. <laughs> and so it was fun and very interesting to see how kith and kin can still so much influence our ability to reach across geographical divides, um, differences in vocation, political and cultural differences in order to have good conversations with each other. Now, I, I felt very, very strongly a, a, a tie to, um, to that in, in the book where you, where you discovered that introducing yourself by a family connection is what, is what brought those uh, barriers down. Because when, when I was growing up uh, back home in Clay County, my grandfather had taught uh, in the high school, the which was the only high school in the county, um, for forty years. He taught math and and physics, and so almost everybody in the county who was an adult when I was growing up had had him in class at some point, and mm -hmm. uh, so they didn't know who I was, but 
once they realized that I was Oliver Cornett's grandson, then, the, oh, and then they would, then they could relate to me <laughs> in a way that they, that they <laughs> couldn't before. But I also understood very much about how you, while, while you took pride in your family connections, when you were younger, you know, you have that strong feeling of you want to be yourself. You want to be known for yourself. And, and so that's sort of that youthful, um, rebellion, I guess, against what you see as the limitations of your family. But, but maybe a little bit later, you start to realize that that's actually, it's, it's maybe a benefit instead of, instead mm -hmm. of a restriction. Yes. And I would say a lot of, I think a lot of young people, um, experience those emotions and feelings, and they're asking very good questions about how to determine their vocation and, and their calling in life. And, sometimes seeking out that independence can be a part of that journey. I think the Amish have a very interesting way of kind of building a, a set of independences into their larger community so that young people can explore, determine who they want to be and how they want to live, and then hopefully kind of return to um, their community. But yes, as, as time went on, I began to find out how few people have that blessing of being known by their family ties, or at least being known by them in a good way. And so realizing the gift that can be, as well as the difficulty was, was really pivotal, or sorry, pivotal for me. Right. And it's, I mean, it's something I think this would have been a very different book were it not for those things. I mean, the, the, you're, you're the only person who could write this book. Uh, this isn't mm. just simply somebody um, going into an area where they don't, where they don't have any kind of ties. I'll, I'll take this moment to, to gripe a little bit uh, in contrast to, for example, somebody like Kevin Williamson, who, mm. um, who, who did what I would really kind of consider hit pieces on, on Eastern Kentucky, um, an article he did, uh, called, I think big white ghetto or something like that, uh, in Owsley County, Kentucky, which is the County that border a County that borders where I grew up. Um, and when you read something like that, you can see why outsiders might be hostile to reporters mm -hmm. because, I was talking with, with uh, a friend of mine, a childhood friend of mine, who's still a friend of mine la last night about that, uh, because I was, I was jotting down notes to talk to you. And I, um, went and looked at the Williamson essay again. And one of the things I told him was, I can't necessarily say that, that everything Williamson says in here isn't, isn't maybe true, but it's, it's the condescension that he has in writing it that, that, uh, right upsets me and that it is only a partial view of the totality. So everywhere yeah, well, has and, its bad things. And a book maybe on Owsley County that is a very direct contrast to that written by a, a returner, so to speak, someone who left and came back is uh, Cassie Chambers's book, Hill Women. I don't know if you've read that one. I'm, I have um, not. It came out, I want to say, in 2019. Okay. Um, and I'm pulling it off of my bookshelf behind me right now. But she actually has a very similar story to 
uh, J.D. Vance in that she left home, left Alzey County, went to Owsley County, sorry, <laughs> and went right. to Harvard Law, uh, but then returned and has dedicated her degree to serving the people of her county in very tangible ways. And um, she, her book is all about the so-called hill women who make a strong community in the Appalachian Mountains. And so it's a book that's really about portraying the dignity and resilience uh, and the grit of people who live in Appalachia. And I thought in many ways contrasted to a lot of the literature that's been written about uh, struggling post-industrial or um, poor rural communities and was really an inspiration for me as I worked on my book as well. Now, she's not a journalist, but I think she brings that outside eye, but with the view of also being native to that place. Right. And that's not to say that that places are above criticism and critique. In fact, they're they're in desperate need of it. But what they need, it's almost, it's really kind of applying the the, the boomer and sticker uh, label to writers. Um, who 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 is there to cultivate and do good, and who is there really to exploit the story and just and leave without any without any benefit, other than saying these people mm. ought to move somewhere else and get a factory job or whatever, um, you know, whatever the attitude is. And so uh, I. Your your book is very much a sticker uh, book, even though you're not there. You're there trying to <laughs> cultivate something that's beneficial and good, even at times asking hard questions. And and you know we ought to do that to place for places we love. Well, that is a great compliment, and I thank you. I'm I'm glad that it reads that way. And um, you know, one thing I realized as I wrote the stories of these people is that, you know, they are still surrounded by family and I still intend to hopefully see them when I return. And so I wanted to write charitably and make sure that everything, every critique I did share in my book was given as charitably as possible. Um, you know, even, even in the ways I talk about perhaps the governor, Brad Little, is going to be influenced by the fact that I know people who know him. <laughs> and we're sure. part of this chain of community and membership that goes back literally hundreds of years. My great-grandmother actually worked as a cook for one of his sheep herding um, uh, communities. And so, you know, it's very interesting how when you've got all those ties binding you to a place, it changes how you write about it and makes you want to write in a way that both promotes the the dignity and the beauty of what is there, and that also offers whatever critiques you offer with as much charity as possible. Right, and the the littles are actually, I've, I've got them jotted down here. Uh, you've got, you have a couple of stories that kind of thread through uh, as you're talking, as you're focusing on some different groups of people, modern people, uh, or I should say con maybe contemporary people. That might be a better way of putting it. People who are currently farming there, living there. Yeah. But you have you have the story of your great-grandfather, who, who you refer to as Grandpa Dad, and uh, his, his farming, which was a very, uh, I guess, Barry-esque approach in that it was very tied to his piece of land and, and 
he was something of a contrarian farmer resisting sort of modern farming techniques mm -hmm. and doing so very successfully. And then you also have the thread of the Little family, beginning with Andy Little, and they build this big sheep herding uh, empire, and, and which then leads through the thread to his, is it his grandson, Brad, who is currently governor of the state of Idaho. Yeah. Yep. I think grandson is correct. I yeah. And right. it was really, it was really fun getting to do all the research into the little family and to see how deeply connected they were to Emmett in its early history. Uh, how many immigrants they encouraged to move to Idaho. The Basque immigrants from uh, Northern Spain were many of the original sheep herders in Idaho and the Basque community in Emmett was such a wonderful hub of cultural diversity in life. And it was interesting to see, too, how many jobs there were in the town because of the sheep herding empire. Now, there were also multiple instances of that being a bad thing, um, including issues of soil erosion and water, um, uh, water siltation that stemmed from overgrazing in a lot of the northern parts of Idaho uh, on land that the Littles and other sheep herders and grazers, uh, cattle ranchers included, used. And so uh, the Taylor Grazing Act was a, a response to what I would say was overuse and uh, too much growth, not, not a proper response to the limits of place as those empires came about. And so it's interesting, too, then, how a lot of the farmers who began growing hay and other things were growing it, again, for people like Andy Little, as they relied less on grazing in the mountains of Idaho and came to look for more inputs close to home. So it's, as all stories, a very complicated and interesting story of, of people remaining in place, of loving and stewarding place in some ways, and then also perhaps not respecting its limits in others. And one thing I found very interesting and beautiful was this picture of the home Andy Little built, the forever house that he right. wanted to stand, you know, as a testament to his legacy, to stand against time and whatever nature threw at it. No Littles live there anymore. Um, it still stands, but it's not, it's not lived in by the people who were once such a part of Emmett's legacy and history. Right. And that, that brings that brings up one of one of the themes that that you talk about and and come to towards the end of the book and uh, sorry if i'm if i'm giving spoilers here but um that the legacy that that past generations build isn't always easy to hand down and you use your own grandpa dad who's who's really in a lot of ways kind of the hero of the book that his own approach, while it was successful for him, also kind of led to it being difficult for that heritage to be passed down. Yep. When I read Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America and came across a quote in which he refers to Americans as uh, being in the habit of always considering themselves as in isolation and fancying their whole destiny is in their hands, it made me think of my grandpa dad and of a lot of 
kind of self-sufficient mavericks in Idaho's history, people who always have this very libertarian spirit, which enables them to do a lot of things well and to opt out of a lot of things that perhaps um, can lend health to place, but that can also have this other consequence, which is that they are not very naturally communitarian or interdependent in their approach to life. And that then a lot of their legacy or of the goodness they can build in place doesn't get handed down because they don't necessarily want to work with others or to give up some of their independence in order to share the legacy and tradition that they've they've created. And so that was something I realized happened only as I was writing the book. I remember when my grandpa Wally said they were going to sell the farm when I was in college. And I knew that none of my dad's siblings were working on the farm at that point, so it made sense. Um, but I didn't really understand the full reasons why perhaps our family wasn't integrated more into the day-to-day workings of the farm. And it was only as I started asking these questions and pursuing this story that I realized how much my grandpa wanted to be a part of the day-to-day workings and wanted to understand and continue on perhaps what his father had put in place. But because of his staunch independence, he didn't necessarily want, my great-grandfather didn't necessarily want to share the totality of that vision. And that seems to be uh, and understandably so, that seems to be maybe something that's that's more um, more heightened in the West, uh, because I think maybe the type of people who went West, the homesteaders, and they're mm. they're sort of making it on their own. You know, those were people who left everything behind. They were, you know, they're they're brave souls who were literally gambling everything on this and. Um, I think I, I can understand why it would build um, a, a fierce independence of, you know, sort of, I, I did this um, and I'm the only one who can do it. But at the, at the end of the day, it's, it can be detrimental to, to community and, and to the health of community, I guess. Yeah. Well, farm successions, you know, the passing down of a farm from one generation of the family to the next is notoriously difficult to do. And from the discussions I've had and the research I've done, there's entire organizations set up in an effort to kind of try and help that happen. And as I've researched, I've realized and I would tentatively posit that a lot of this has to do with the fact that farming has increasingly become something that can only be done by one generation of a family in place and only done by the nuclear family in place, that it isn't shared throughout the lifetime of the farmer. And so then it becomes very difficult for them to kind of switch tracks at the end of their life and to begin exercising that more interdependent communal mindset in passing down the farm. So to the degree that we can cultivate more collaborative farming enterprises, um, more co-ops or, or something of that nature that encourage that communal spirit, I, I think it must help with the passing on either to another, another generation of one's own family or even just to another kid who wants to get started on a farm and who has that desire to work the land. 
Yeah, we we are facing something of that um, with my own family farm. My parents are both in their 80s, and they live on 200 acres in in eastern Kentucky. And I guess I would say it's something of a dormant farm. There's maybe a little bit of farming that goes on on it. My my family uh, were teachers, and uh, so they were not full time farmers, um, at least in the generations I know. But they, but we we always lived on a farm. And when I was young, there was act, some active farming on it. But I was never really uh, brought in to a lot of that, and probably some of that is my own fault for not pursuing it. But you know, when you're a kid, you come home from school, you're, you're not working out in the field. Doesn't sound like a great idea, you know? Um, right. But, but we have this farm now and, uh, you know, what are we going to do with it? And of course my parents are still living there and, and we'll continue to do so, but, uh, we've got to figure that out. And, uh, I don't live there and, you know, what, what's, what's going to become of it and, and what do we do with it? And I don't have answers for that really. Uh, you Mm -hmm. know, I, it's been, should we sell it? And of course my visceral reaction to that is absolutely not, but you know, some, somebody has to deal with it, right? Somebody has to, has to be there. And, uh, um, and, and so, those are, those are hard questions and, you know, we're not the first ones to deal with that, but, um, but those are difficult questions and, and, uh, it's, it's not just a matter of, in that instance, farm policy, but just sort of approach and attitude and, and, uh, how do you, how do you iron these things out? So it's, you know, it's not simply, uh, do we have the right subsidy, you know, for something, for something like that, but it's, it's a much different attitude. And one of the things that you focus on, one of the uh, groups of people you bring up uh, that have done this successfully are the Amish. And of course, Wendell Berry has has pointed to the Amish uh, for, well, decades, I guess, as, as really the successful model of farming in the U.S., of small farming, um, healthy farming. But at the same time, it's a group of people who are built around a certain religion and culture. So can you have that without that, without that religion and culture or, or what do you substitute for that? Right. Um, you know, Chris Newman is the founder and operator of, I, I hope I pronounce this correctly, Sylvanaqua Farms in Virginia. And he's hoping to grow it into a co-op that mimics, I think, what you see in a community like the Bruderhof. Uh, in which you have this cooperative of people owning and sharing land in common and each contributing their own talents to the larger whole. Uh, The goal would be that farmers could specialize in what they're good at, but because they're doing it as a collective, they're sharing equipment, they're sharing a lot of the costs associated, operational costs associated with farming, and they are diverse because they're doing it together. So, you know, for instance, the person who's really good at working with cattle focuses on working with cattle, but is part of a larger rotational operation that makes sure that they are not overgrazing a specific tract of land. 
And so I think it's interesting to see people in my generation and others beginning to think through how can we take these models like the Hutterite model or the Amish model and make it something that is uh, for secular, more commercial purposes successful. The degree to which you can do that without some larger vision, whether it's inspired through spiritual means or cultural, a shared cultural set of values, I think is a very interesting question. And we'll just have to see how how that can be preserved and promoted through perhaps a, a system of values that you sign on to or, or other other constraints on practices that enable people to say, you know, this is something we will do together. But one of the things Newman points out is that the reason we haven't seen a lot more of these operations in the U.S. is probably because of that view of the independent, autonomous individual that Nisbet and Barry and others um, point to, and the way that it makes farmers and and other business people very reluctant to do something that would so-called constrain their freedoms, that would put limits upon them. But in our own generation, as we see just the need for regenerative systems of agriculture and healthier land, I think it is a very interesting model to look to and to follow in in the years to come. I want to shift gears just a second and talk some about an interview that you did a couple of years ago in the New York Times with Wendell Berry, but it was it was not a sit down interview and certainly wasn't over an internet connection. Uh, <laughs> tell me about, tell me about your interview with Wendell Berry uh, and how that came about. Well, my first Q and a with him was actually for the American conservative back in February, 2014, I think. And that was an interview that took place via letters. I met him at the Front Porch Republic Conference in Louisville that fall prior and asked him if we could do a Q&A for the magazine. And he said yes, but only if it was done via handwritten letters back and forth. Or I guess he didn't stipulate handwritten, but (laughs) (laughs) mailed letters back and forth. I believe mine were handwritten because it feels awkward to send a computer typed letter to Wendell Berry, but, um, yeah, I understand that. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a, a process of writing back and forth that began then. But as I shared my own story with him via letters, he was incredibly kind and continued to write to me every once in a while. If I wrote to him, he would always write a letter back, which, uh, is a gift. I will always be immensely grateful for and immensely humbled by. But when I had the New York Times reach out to me in 2017, I think, uh, they wanted me to perhaps write something for them and they asked what I would want to do. And I said, well, I'd like to write about localism and I'd like to perhaps do another interview with Wendell Berry. and it was it was absolutely hilarious because the editor said, "Okay, what's localism and who's Wendell Berry?" <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Wendell Berry's actually written for the New York Times. You'd think they might remember, but <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's this one editor, you know, maybe never <laughs> read his work. I was very curious how in the world they were, or why he was talking to me if if he had never 
read my stuff because I feel like that's all I ever write about is localism <laughs> and Wendell Berry. But anyways, so they said yes. And so I reached out to Mr. Berry and asked if he would be interested in this. And, and he said, yes, but you know how it goes. You know, it has to be via letters and I want us to take our time. And so we did. I, I think we started the process of the writing the letters back and forth and kind of exchanging ideas, asking questions, getting answers um, six months before the actual uh, piece was published. And I, I loved that process of thinking long and hard, asking questions, sending it back and forth. And then I actually sent him my typed up version that I wanted to run and just asked for his input on whether, you know, he thought it looked good to him. And uh, then we went on from there. And it was an incredible honor, such a joy to work on. And I continue to lean on his wisdom in so many different ways. Every time I crack open the unsettling of America, I find new treasures. And so I'm very grateful I got to do that. Yeah, that would be a bad way to do a podcast, I can tell you. I can tell you that. Uh, <laughs> Six months back and forth. Here we go. <laughs> Here, here's my voice memo. Please answer. Um, yeah. I was reading through, uh, back through the interview, and this this quote jumped out at me um, from, from Wendell. Uh, to get outside the trajectory that produced Trump, we will have to get back to tradition. I'm unsure... When we began to think of, for instance, the 15th Psalm and Jesus' law of neighborly love is optional. They are not optional, as I think the Amish example proves and is proved by present failure. So it's his, you know, his call for tradition. And I think a lot of people over on maybe on both sides overlook um, Wendell about that, that that he's he is fundamentally a traditionalist and is calling us to a purer understanding of that than modern partisan politics will allow for mm -hmm. uh culture tradition and also i think what i see in in mr barry's work over and over again is a call to charity um, to the first and second commandment to love the lord your god with all your heart soul and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself and we've lost that charity in our age, in our politics. And it's very sad to see that there's just no, no spirit of humility or charity left oftentimes, it seems, in our national conversations. And I think when you read his work, you see that, that even as someone who was educated in a different environment, who traveled the world, he returned home and has loved the folk cultures and the people that he grew up with and has sought at all points to portray them and their stories with charity. And uh, that's something I think we can all aspire to if we're able. Right. I think that's exactly right. And it's it's that lack of charity that we're I think our culture is kind of struggling with right now, you know, with the whole quote unquote cancel culture mentality where people are you know getting losing their jobs for tweets from when they were in teenagers or whatever and and I think it's like you say Wendell's writing is always marked by charity I think one of the great uh one of the great uh, aspects of of your book is is its charitableness so this goes back to our earlier conversation as opposed to some who may go to a place and not and, and write about it 
maybe truthfully, but not charitably. And I think that, that what we find is that it's hard really to get to ultimate truth without the charity because what we we lose we lose the humanity and our own what ought to be guiding us is our own humility which demands that or or should show us that we ourselves are in desperate need of charity and grace yes yep well and as you point out there's there's an instinct on the left toward this but also i think on the right there's you know this sort of own the libs mentality oh uh, sure absolutely that can definitely fall prey to this as well. And in all corners of our world, the need for grace just seems to become more and more evident. And um, I, th- I thought it was interesting how in, in the process of working on the book, I, I realized more and more how little I knew. That's just a natural part of getting older, right? But when you write about agriculture, let me, let for me instance, you. <laughs> <laughs> when you're writing about agriculture, for instance, you're, you're just undermining, or sorry, not undermining, unearthing layer after layer after layer of intricacy and depth. And how does how does teff farming work? How do you rotate cattle in order to grow the health of soil? These questions are so beautiful and incredible. And um, all along the way, I think you begin to realize how much you need to approach your neighbor with the desire to learn from their experience and, and to hopefully have a better understanding of the world and greater wonder as a result of those, those conversations. I'll end here with your, your thoughts about a quote that kind of jumped out at me um, in, from your book. And you say, if I've lost something, it's not necessarily my fault. So what, what do you mean by that? Well, I think the first time I read Wendell Berry uh, was in college, and I read Remembering, which is a novella he wrote about Andy Catlett, and Andy's story at that point in his um, in his work was not that different from mine up to that point. Andy had left home to go to college and became a journalist and even started writing about farmers. And, um, but Andy went home and he returned to the farm and remembering is a book about him very consciously remembering himself as a member of that community. And so I felt a lot of guilt and sorrow over the fact that I had left and that I was no longer a part of that community But I also tied that to the fact that I was not someone who had worked the land alongside my grandpa or great grandpa, that I always received the goodness of their crops, but that I didn't make myself a part of their work um, and wasn't even that curious about it until my great grandfather had already passed away. I was always enamored by his stories and always loved spending time with him, but I wasn't interested really in his work or his industry. And so that quote comes as part of the realization after talking to my grandfather that he very purposefully kind of kept his family separate from his work. He did not desire for the two to be intertwined. And so 
it's part of the realization that if the farm is no longer owned by or operated by the Howard family, it's not necessarily my grandpa or my dad's or my fault. It's not something that where we could necessarily have done anything different because it was grandpa dad's and he was proud that it was his uh, and only his. And so then I begin to ask myself, well, what are the legacies he gave me that he did intend for me to carry on and pass down and that I see myself as being able to continue to promote through my life and through my work. And, and that of course are includes the stories that I share in this book that he gave me. And then the work of neighborliness and love and service and stewardship that he very, very openly and generously shared throughout his life. And those are things I also seek to continue on, whether I live in Virginia or whether I move back to Idaho. And so I began to let go of that sense of guilt that I think some of us who read Wendell Berry can feel that we haven't gone home or at least haven't gone home yet, and that we don't have those ties to perhaps a a family farm or to the land that our, our forebears had. And perhaps in some instances, people should feel sorrow or guilt about that. Um, but in my own case, the more layers I unearthed in this particular family story, the more I realized it wasn't something that my great grandfather actually intended for us to continue on after he was gone. And so I began to look for the things he did want us to continue on after he was gone and to focus on those to the best of my ability. Well, at Cultural Debris, we're all about acts of recovery of what we, of what we can find. So, uh, I, I think that's right. We, we live in a, we live in a disjointed culture and, uh, it's not designed for the, the passing on of a lot of these things. And in fact, I think any, anytime we're able to recover some of these things that it's, it's a bit of a victory against the way of culture is is designed uh, right now and that's mm. just um, that's just kind of the way it is that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try in fact I think it means we should try as hard as we can but the but but I think you're right that that uh, we can't we can't feel guilty about those things because that ultimately it, it's it's counterproductive uh, to to actually building something worthwhile I believe but well, the book is Uprooted, and where can folks find you and the book uh, online? You can find the book. Uh, I'll start with the non-Amazon sources. <laughs> <laughs> you can find it on Bookshop and on uh, Penguin Random House's website. You can find it at Barnes & Noble. You can probably find it, so to speak, anywhere that books are sold. Um but those are some of the primary sources and on Amazon as well. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Gracie Olmstead, Gracie with a Y, G-R-A-C-Y, and on Facebook as well, and then on Instagram at Gracie Writes. And I will link these things in show notes so folks can can refer there to uh, for for a handy handy link. Well, I appreciate you being on and talking to me and uh, there, you know, there are a ton of things we could, we could talk about, but I would encourage people to read the book because I think it's, uh, 
it's thoughtful and it is charitable and uh and it pushes us in the in the right way even though there's that's a general direction not a um not a specific program which is one of the things i think we have to learn uh about these mm-hmm. things well, thank you so much. I am so glad that you enjoyed it, and I'm very grateful to you for reading it. Well, I encourage others to do so, and thanks for being on, and thanks for, for tearing yourself away from uh, from your kids, which are, <laughs> are uh, more more fun than talking to me, I'm sure. Oh, no, it's a delight. You know, they don't necessarily know how to talk to me about Wendell Berry yet, although we're working on it. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm my... sure they'll pick that up. Well, my five-year-old already uh, has, when she sits down to scribble her little notes on paper and I ask her what she's doing, she often tells me she's writing a book about farming. So we're passing something (laughs) along there. (laughs) Very good. Very good. So you're you're doing the job that needs to be done to to pass it on to future generations. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Alan. I really appreciate getting to be on the show. 